This is Eastman's Elevated Podcast. I have on great guests that are really knowledgeable, consistently successful. We're able to dive deep down the rabbit holes of these different subject matters of shooting, of physical fitness, of mental toughness and drive. All the different skills that make up a complete hunter that you can become. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Yo, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So on today's podcast, I have on Dan Silvera. Uh, Dan is uh, a, a really accomplished free diver and really well known in that world. And he's also an incredibly accomplished bow hunter. Like he harvested this giant heavy blacktail, like one of the biggest ones I've ever seen this season. Also harvested a great six-point bull. And, and Dan... You know, through free diving, through bow hunting, is really in tune with his environment. Uh, he's got a good feel. His instincts are keen. And so we kind of dive into some outside-the-box ideas on this podcast about bow hunting and and kind of the relationship between free diving and bow hunting. It just made for this incredible conversation. Uh, really excited to release it to you guys as I really enjoyed it, and I think you guys will too. Uh, we'll get right into the podcast here. I just want to thank a couple sponsors. I want to thank Silencer Central. So Silencer Central, uh, they make silencers for rifles, and they have a model that's great for hunting. You know, it's it's called the Banish Backcountry, and it comes in super light at like 7.8 ounces, fairly small. And, and what a silencer will do for you is it'll reduce the recoil in the rifle, which makes for more accurate shooting. Uh, it'll also quiet down the sound of the rifle so, you know, those animals, they might not react to the first shot where you may get a follow-up shot. And it's also, it's really going to help like keeping your hearing for hearing those bugles. So it's an incredible product. I'm going to get one put on my rifle here just so I can have some experience with it. And I'm um, going to introduce it to Katie, my daughter. Uh, you know, it's a, a big part of that flinch or that that recoil is created from the the loud sound of the rifle and I think that'll really help and so I'm excited to get it put on my rifle here uh, you know this silencer central is such a great company they'll help you with the paperwork they'll help you get the approval uh, you you know they'll thread your your excuse me they'll thread your rifle for you uh, to make sure that everything's set up and that it's um, operating correctly so you can go check these guys out at their website. Again, they're happy to help. Great customer service, American-owned company. Uh, so check them out over at Silencer Central. And thanks to those guys for their support of the podcast. I also want to thank Sig Sauer Optics. Uh, I'm just constantly blown away at Sig Sauer Optics and so happy to be a part of this company. So uh, the, the Zulu 6s are the image-stabilizing binos, which I think are the biggest revolution to hit the hunting industry in at least the last 10 years. To have a stable image on a windy ridge, uh, you know, to have a stable image all the time, it, it just equals more sightings, and that's for, you know, picking animals out far and also up close when I'm stalking in with my bow. They're just incredible. So they, they've revamped this line. They came out with their higher-end glass. 
the performance of them is just amazing. And so these are the Zulu 6's image stabilization. I really like the 12x42's is what I carry around my chest. Also, the 16x42's are amazing, and they also have a pair of 20x42's. So check those things out. I also like their standard glasses. It's an absolute joy to look through. They have outdone themselves. So they just came out with their new Zulu 10's. Uh, the 10 by 42s are amazing. Just the the optical performance that they're packing in this uh, affordable optic is uh, absolutely amazing and stands up to to absolutely anything out there. I also am absolutely in love with these um, 15 by 56s. The light gathering capabilities, the field of view, the glass, the quality—they're an absolute joy to look through on a tripod. And uh, equal a bunch of sightings for me. So super pumped on these binos. Check that out. They also have their scope. I believe their rangefinders are the best in the business. Uh, so I'm using the Kilo 5K. You can put the speed of your bow in for incline and decline for the perfect cuts. Uh, same uh, reading on light and dark targets. A powerful laser to be able to shoot through grass. Uh, just an amazing rangefinder. Just amazing stuff by Sig Sauer Optics. If you're in the market for any optics, just give them a try. Go look through them. Compare them to what else is out there. And uh, I guarantee you'll be impressed and probably come home with some of those Sig Sauer's. So thanks to those guys for their support. I also want to thank Black Ovis. So Black Ovis has the best game bags going. They carry all the top name brands. It's an internet retail shop. And uh, so they carry the top name brands as well as their own name brands. Just great deals on things. Ships right to your door. They have a knowledgeable staff. Uh, it's just a, a great company. And you can save 10% off your order. Uh, so if you put in the promo code ELEVATED10, that'll save 10% off your order. Uh, again, you can get SIGs there. You can get Cryptech. You can get a bunch of our sponsor gear there. Just great guys. So if you do have uh, some needs for uh, hunting gear or clothing, just check out their website. They do a great job. And thanks to those guys for their support. Also, check out Camo Fire. So Camo Fire is an app with um, 80 new hunting deals that come up every 24 hours. You can save a pile of money on overstock gear or different sizes, things of that nature. And they have some really good stuff that comes up. So check out those guys as well. Thanks to Eastman's for all their support. Uh, check out everything we do. You can check up. Uh, check out our Tag Hub, uh, uh, now with a new mapping system, real organized data, uh, help you apply for that next tag out west uh, for this upcoming season. So you can save a little money by putting in the promo code BRIAN. We still have the Mule Deer course. If you want to learn to be a better mule deer hunter, we have this, uh, it's a, a video course that you walk through with uh, over hundreds of videos in it, uh, everything I know about traveling and hunting mule deer. Uh, it's a deal at $99. You save 10% off that. Put in the promo code BRIANMDC. We might have a few of those MagView gifts left. Um, check on that before you order. But yeah, that's the mule deer course. Uh, and then the, the magazines, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal. Check out our YouTube at Eastman's Beyond the Grid. And... Um, yeah, we got some more in the works as well. So I'm um, going to wrap up this hunting season. I'm down to my last hunt of the year. I couldn't be more excited. There's um, no cameraman this weekend. It's just me bow hunting. 
and um, actually I'll be gone for a handful of days, as many days as I can squeak out, uh, be hunting with some of my really good buddies from Hawaii, so uh, couldn't be more excited. Uh, looks like getting some weather. It looks like they got about a foot of snow where I'm headed. So it's big mountains, deep snow, bitter cold, last hunt of the year. Uh, couldn't be more excited. Be looking for a heavy older mule deer. And um, yeah, I got that bow shooting really good. And um, yeah, I'm just going to finish getting this podcast out to you guys, load the gear up in the truck and be gone. I got brand new tires on the truck, which couldn't be more excited about that for um, wintertime driving, you know, chains and yeah, everything I need for uh, for a cold hunt. But I'm really excited to get out and get after it. So um, yeah, that's what I'll be doing. I'll give you guys some updates and definitely going to make a better showing on my social media here. It's, uh, you know, I get into hunting season and construction and everything I've got going it seems like that kind of takes a backseat but um definitely want to put out some good content there so uh yeah we'll wrap up the season and uh, be putting more on that social media on instagram so you follow me there and uh, with that let's get into this podcast it's a great one dan silvia um i'm your host brian barney eastman's elevated here we go well yeah um I really like that that thought that you just said, like uh, 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 so much that you experience through travel and so much excitement. Like sometimes I think, um, you know, you go through these hardships or you have like such excitement, like uh, whether it's free diving or hunting for you or my bow hunting or whatever it is, like you have so much that you're able to, to come back and then other life or normal things or work or job uh, comes easy, like construction for you. I think that's like an interesting thought for sure. Yeah. Uh, especially this year I was on an elk hunt and I was think I was reflecting on the elk hunt. Like how, how is this hunt? What am I here to be taught? And um, when I come out of this, you know, what, what perspective am I going to gain in my normal life? And so I've got this one week of absolute madness intensity and why do I always keep choosing to push myself to the edge of my boundaries and bring other people with me? And um, the correlation that I made is that, you know, in construction sales, um, you know, every client's a little bit different and you've got to capitulate. And so um, it's something I learned in, in whitetail hunting. I got to travel a little bit to do some whitetail hunting. And my buddy was telling me, he goes, you know, mature bucks always going to move into the wind. And so if you've got all the wind in your favor, you're never going to kill them. And so this year when I was elk hunting um, in a unit in Colorado that's got a lot of pressure um, and the elk didn't really want to communicate very much with me, um, it became kind of a mule deer hunt. And so I had to give the elk the wind, um, but I shaved off a piece of the pie. And with sales, you've got to give the client what they want, but you got to learn what angle you have um, to kind of close the deal. Oh, interesting. Yeah, for sure. It's a uh, well, and your 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 ability, like we were discussing before I hit record, but the the uh, ability to to be able to adapt or be able to problem solve. It seems like uh, no matter what we're doing in life, there's always issues that come up, and if you know you can sit and stress over that decision, or like in the the elk woods, you can continue to try to do things the one way. But it it seems like it's so difficult and so challenging that it almost takes like this adaptation like you have to look at the scenario and come up with the solution and it's not always black and white yeah i think that um free diving and the art of breath holding and being in really foreign environments 
has taught me some significant things that I, I feel I have a completely different perspective than a lot of hunters. Um, and it's something that I'm learning how to teach, but uh, it's pretty abstract for most people. And so if you think about diving, like let's take the Pacific Ocean, come out here to California with me and we go on a dive. Um, you're just going to feel like there's this vast bottom that you want to look at. And there'd be no way to do it without draining the ocean because with free diving, it's like running full speed through a house with the lights off and just flicking the lights on a couple times. So your whole picture of the bottom is based on these one minute, maybe one and a half minute breath holds. And you've got this big landscape to understand to figure out where these fish are going to be and why they're going to be there. And so it's kind of like um, Jeopardy, where you're trying to guess the word before you have all the letters or you're putting together a puzzle. You're trying to figure out what that puzzle is um, before you have all the pieces up. And coming from that world of freediving into hunting, which I didn't have a lot of mentorship in hunting, it was daunting because I'd look at a mountain or a mountain range or go on Onyx and think about an out-of-state hunt, and there's just too much landscape to cover. And for me, I've got a seven-day hunt that I've got to be successful on. And so I would look at that landscape and say, how can I go into it and take a few snapshots and understand the big picture and not stress about any one thing, but make decisions, sound decisions, based on the evidence I have in those seven locations that I scouted. And from that, I can put together a game plan that'll lead me to opportunity. And well, opportunity is, is all you really want on a hunt. Success is based on a lot of factors working working for you that uh, we don't necessarily have control over. So um, diving's like that. And I'm able to sit in a mindset that I think is really hard to train in, especially for archery hunters. And I think it's the, the biggest challenge that archery hunters have today. And that's why there's guys out there training people how to shoot a bow. And I had the opportunity to train a little bit with Joel Turner and so learned his style of, of shooting. And he brought something up to my mind about um, your consciousness and what happens in your consciousness uh, and what happens in your subconscious mind. Well, if I took you on a journey of breath holding into a foreign environment and made you swim down to a depth that you don't know if you can return from, you'll find that you're spending a lot more time in that subconscious mindset than you are when you're at full draw pulling the trigger. Because that's a momentary uh, second of time where you get to train or see who you are in that subconscious mindset. And the people that think that they have more control over life are normally the people that have the most struggle with that subconscious mindset. And they'll slap the trigger or they'll jerk or they'll do different things. And so free diving or breath holding in a really uncomfortable environment um, it helps you sit in that space and learn more about yourself. And so you're holding your breath. Your already subconscious mind is saying, let's go to the surface. Let's do all these other things. You know that's not the decision you want to make. You want to hunt this fish down. You want to shoot it. And you're having to make accurate decisions and then deal with the fish while you're coming up and fight it and maybe a shark or whatever's coming in. And so, you know, I think that's one of the best ways to develop um, good hunter instinct when uh, you're in that decisive moment where you have to pull the trigger and do everything right in a split second. Man, it makes total sense. Yeah, like a, a couple really good points. But yeah, I want to dive into what you're talking about further, the the subconscious and conscious mind. Like you're, you're right, there's a lot of things. Like once you 
how you do one thing is how you do everything. And so once you kind of learn the path to success in, in, in one facet, like you can transition that into something else like you've done from free driving. And then you've been able to transition, transition that into hunting, into your professional life. But yeah, it's like getting really good, uh, in those brief time periods of being able to control yourself. And I think there's a lot of things that can train us for that. Like, I think you can use life as a training course for that as well. But I think free diving really lends itself to it. Like you say, that breath hold is, uh, I'm sure your body's just screaming at you to go up and you have to control your actions down there and you have to, uh, think through the process and talk your way through it the same way you would bow hunting. That's super interesting. And I see, I see like the same similarities, like, uh, uh, like, um, I had a cameraman that was a bird hunter and, you know, thinking about bird hunting as a kid, uh, I would go out and, and when I first started shooting at ducks, you know, trying to, you know, I could hardly remember what I did when a duck came in. I'd get so excited when they started circling the decoys. And then when I'd up and shoot, I couldn't even think of how far I let it. And so I had to get control of my emotions and then keep my calm. And then when these ducks came in, I'd have to lead them by a foot or you lead them by different distances, depending how far they are away from you and you really have to think through this process and then execute good shots and then birds start to fall and i thought it like gave me really good practice like big game you work so hard a week to get this one opportunity where bird hunting i could go out and i could shoot a box of shells or i could get 20 of these opportunities in one outing so i really thought like that sharpened my skills of being able to keep my cool keep my calm think through these scenarios the same way you're talking about free diving and then you know i've also related it to fly fishing and like trying to be really clutch in these moments in these these brief moments that you get and that's what bow hunting is, is these opportunities are so fleeting and you want it so bad uh, that the, the first handful of times are depending on the personality or who the person is. Like you screw it up a bunch just because you're not thinking through it. You're not going through that shot process that you've built. You're not going through all the steps because of that uh, that subconscious mind that you're talking about. Yeah, Um it's interesting because the other day um, something popped up where some guys on YouTube or Instagram were uh, eating a chili pepper, a really hot one, and then trying to see how accurate they can shoot their bow. And I think there's actually some truth in that being a good way to practice because um, a lot of times you're on uneven ground, ground, your feet hurt, you're thirsty, you're tired. Uh, the elk caught you off guard or the deer caught you off guard. Uh, the wind is not in your favor and you're having to make all these important decisions in an environment that's not perfect. And so when we go to the range, everything is perfect. Mm-hmm. And so I have a tendency to, to do funny things when I'm at the range and try to shoot from a sitting position or, um, you know, get different angles or, uh, try to make it difficult for myself. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, yeah, I think we can build it into our training, like the more we think about it. And I think it's something we can be creative with as well. You know, I, I shot a 3D shoot this year and it was a two day shoot. It was, uh, on, on Lamper's Summit there. And so the first day, you know, it's everything I'm used to, even though we're uneven footing, even though we're shooting 3D targets, even though there's people around and there's stress and pressure, you know, I'm able to execute correctly. And then I got to day two and I had shot, 
you know, I don't know, maybe 75 arrows, 100 arrows the day before. We didn't sleep much. We camped out, went to bed a little bit late and woke up that next day. And that next day I had to fight through my shot process. You know, I had to, to fight through my pin didn't aim the same. I was fatigued. And so like I was, uh, I shot a lesser score on the second day, uh, not by much, maybe 10 points or something, but I was prouder of my shooting that second day because I had to shoot, uh, through being fatigued. I, my pin didn't aim right, but I still executed correctly. I still Still had all this stress and pressure, you know, coming on the second day. Uh, but I, I was more impressed with my shooting the second day than the first, just because uh, uh, it was a lot more difficult and there was a, a lot more challenge to it. So I think we can definitely build that into our practice routines for sure. Yeah, you you had mentioned before um, that you had done some free diving and you were curious if there was. Um, it, it sounded like you had some questions about breath breath holding and um, how it could benefit you or, or the people listening and hunting. Uh, did you want to? Oh, I would love to, Dan. Yeah. I'm so interested in it, man. So yeah, like you're the, the perfect guest to, to have on and to talk about it. Yeah. I I'm just so intrigued. Like uh, it is such a different world in that, that ocean. And I, I think it's like any of these, um, uh, uh, any of these endeavors that we take on where you've worked really hard at your skill set to to become really proficient at it. And um, uh, I, I like the way that you think about it as well. Like, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I've done just a, a little bit, a brief experience just with a three prong and a buddy uh, out in the ocean and then um, went out and, and uh, went after some reef fish. It was like just the the rubber band style where you pull it back, grip the spear, swim down, and then pull. And, you know, I keep myself in such good shape and fitness. And it was after that that I really started to work more on my breath work and understand it more. Uh, but it was so difficult for me where my buddy that is – you know, grown up in the ocean, it just seemed like it came natural for him. It's like, it's one thing to be out there, you know, in a pool with a snorkel. It's another thing when you have the waves crashing over you and the current and the, uh, the, the, it, it was like, I couldn't catch my breath out there either. I couldn't calm myself just because it was such an unfamiliar terrain, but man, it, it really seems like a, like a, a really fun hobby to have. And especially where you're out on the coast, like it seems like you're really hunting those fish and then uh you're you're able to bring them home for yourself family and friends and cook them up man it, it must be so fun to be close to that ocean it seems like you really enjoy it yeah and i i would say that there's three things that i'd want to touch on um so so first uh just because i'm on the coast doesn't mean that there's not spearfishing inland um there's some fantastic spearfishing actually in the colorado river as you approach Nevada and I know you spend a lot of time in Nevada. So in that hot environment, when you're done shooting these big giant mule deer, um, it's a perfect spot to jump in and shoot some big striped, striped bass. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, outside of the foreign environment, getting comfortable with your gear, getting comfortable with the environment, there's a lot that you could do with your breath that I think is not only beneficial, um, for spearfishing, but it's also beneficial for hunting, for hiking and for your running. And so, when you inhale, um, your heart rate goes up. And when you exhale, your heart rate goes down. So what we do while we're breathing um, before a breath hold is we'll inhale short, two to three seconds into our diaphragm, so below the rib cage. Um, it fills up the lower lobes of the lungs. It's a really efficient way to breathe. 
and we exhale passively and slowly. So that would mean like a two to three second inhale, followed by a 10 to 15 second exhalation. And over the course of three to five minutes, it really lowers your heart rate. And that way, uh, when you take a peak inhalation, full breath all the way to the top, and you dive down, um, you're fully oxygenated and your heart rate's as low as it can be. From that point forward, while you're on a dive, every single move you make needs to be efficient. And I think that's a really powerful lesson to learn for archery because when you're moving through the woods, if you make less movements and you just go slowly and methodically, you see more, your awareness is better, your overall composition of energy in the environment is lower, you're gonna hear more things and you'll spook less animals. In fact, when I was doing that this year multiple times, I had animals come to me, not just underwater, but also on land. And so the disposition of who you are should match what's in nature. And in nature, everything's efficient. You know, animals, unless they're in the rut, they're not moving um, to create extra noise. Everything is intentional. And so on a free dive, the difference between someone that's diving at 20 feet and 100 feet is how many extra moves they're exaggerating and how efficient they are with the ones that are necessary. And so it doesn't actually take that long to become a really good diver. But the two factors here are you got to get your heart rate down as low as it can possibly be. And you have to make the fewest amount of moves, but correctly. Hmm. And that you know, has helped me tremendously, both in the water and on land. And going back to the concept of energy, um, a few years ago, I started noticing that I was getting these sensations while I was in the water. It happens to be this environment that um, transmits frequencies really well. So if you've ever been in the water and a boat's going by, you can hear it really loud. It feels like it's right over the top of you, but it's far away. And um, because it transmits energy that well, um, it started giving me different uh, signs and, and I was feeling different things. And the ones that stood out um, were not just the intuition of like, hey, look right or look left and there's a big fish there, but also the ones of danger. And frequent times happened where I had the intuition that there was a large white shark and, and multiple times I was right. So, um, in fact, one of the times that it happened, um, a mutual friend of mine had gotten bit and I was able to kind of tap into that. And I came up and I remember my dad was diving with me and my brother and I was able to tell him, hey, I have a really bad feeling that someone's been bit. And um, I asked him about a boat that had gone by and he said there was only one person in it. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure there should have been two. So long story short, it was correct. And that took me down a rabbit hole of meeting with some different people that had studied kind of the spiritual realm and the realm of frequency and energy. And to keep a really long story short, um, I found that because I was mindful, I wasn't thinking about a lot of distractions when I'm diving. I'm really engaged in what I'm doing. I'm able to feel things that kind of vibrate at a, at a level that don't stimulate my senses the same way. And when I feel that, I know it, it, there's meaning to it. And I've had the opportunity as a wildlife cinematographer to work with white sharks and film them um, and with many other sharks. They they have it's it's almost like a scent, but 
it's a feeling I get where it's really strong and I know it's there. Um, so I realized that the frequency of the ocean and the frequency of our body have a lot to do with the success as a spear fisherman. So if I dive down and not only am I doing all the wrong moves and adding all these extra um, kind of movements um, that a, an efficient animal wouldn't have, um, my energy is also vibrating at a frequency in the ocean that may not allow, you know, fish may not like and they don't want to come in, especially in the environment that I'm in, which is murky, murky water diving. So I'm not sure, and I'm still learning it, but I'm not sure how much effect it actually has on land because frequencies move differently through air. But, and it'd be interesting to hear your take on it, but I've had times when I'm stalking in on an animal and my energy's wrong and it's like they just know. And you just, you can't close the gap. And other times when I've got my mind right and I'm hunting the right way and I'm not making unnecessary movements like I was just talking about, then I'm moving at the pace of the environment I'm in. And animals seem comfortable with it. And so this year I had the most wild archery experience, uh, probably in my favorite place of all time to hunt blacktail. And that's in Big Sur, so south of Monterey, Carmel, these beautiful, majestic mountains that tower 3,000 feet above the ocean. I'm up there on the mountainsides watching whales swimming by, and I could hear them slapping their arms and tails and see sea lions and birds and everything. It's, it's an incredible view. And, but we're up above the fogs. So in the morning when that fog's there, it's, it's just gorgeous. And I remember my buddy and I were sitting there, you know, glassing and looking across at this hillside where these deer are emerging out of the forest. And we had the win in our favor. And I'm like, I just don't know how it's going to be possible with these deer moving up a hillside for me with a bow to just walk up to them or even sneak up to them because I'm following behind them. They've got four legs. I've got two. And it would have been almost impossible to do a big loop around them. So I decided I'm just going to go and sit along their trail and maybe the big one would be uncomfortable at something and turn around and backtrack to where he started. And ironically, that's what happened. And he came from 200 yards away and was just kind of galloping along, running, and went down a draw. I was able to draw my bow back, and he came out, and he stopped at 34 yards just right in front of me. And I actually had to move to stop him a little bit because he was just coming straight at me. And – um I didn't realize until later I had made a really good decision. And had I walked 30 yards further, I would have been in the shadow of the mountain and my scent would have probably gone down the draw. But because I remained in the, in the sun, um, my scent was going uphill. And where he stopped was right at the edge of where the sunlight was touching that mountain where the wind wasn't really doing what he wanted anymore. And that's probably why he was running, realizing he was a little bit late. But I attribute some of that, and I'm not 100% positive yet because it hasn't ha happened enough times on land, um, to realize that I think you know maybe my energy had a little bit to do with it. Mm -hmm. Man, um, such an interesting theory, Dan. Like I think um, I think you're on to something. Like um, it, it's not a thought that us common hunters have a lot, but there there's something to being in tune with your environment there there is something like it takes a bit to get in tune with your environment and us as humans like i had this thought like uh 
you know, when we go into the woods, we drive our car in and we bring this scent in and, you know, we have this this impact to our environment, this human impact that we can hardly avoid. And we start hiking around and we're just making this noise and we're talking and we're setting up camps and we're, you know, just this human impact into the into the woods. And I think like the more we can minimize that. Like I, uh, I'm out in my backyard all the time, whether I'm shooting my bow or maybe I'm cutting wood or I'm stacking wood, but, but I, I hardly ever just sit out there. And so like, I'm always working. I always have this human impact out there. And I was out there one night and I like, I just sat there on like this rock that I have sitting out inside my front door and all of a sudden I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I can hear the the birds I can hear like the predator birds are uh making noise as they're flying by and they're hunting and I'm starting to like notice these things that I don't really notice around my house and all of a sudden these field mice are coming out into the gravel and running around where I've never seen field mice before like I'm just taking in the setting in scenario and so I had this thought like you know, this is what I'm doing in the woods. Every time I go into the woods, I'm always trying to hustle and get to this vantage point. I'm in this constant motion of just trying to make these moves where I need to settle into that environment. And and I think there's like definitely the energy that you're talking about, you know, and the human impact together, like those things like getting in tune with that environment and being able to move slow and get into the beats of the mountains. Cause like you said, the animals, like when they're, they have no wasted effort, like everything's intentional and, and no extra movements. And I think we're so used to the hustle and bustle that we bring that world into the hunting woods and trying to find success in this short amount of time when they live 365 days a year out there and are so in tune with their environment and I've just noticed that I've done better when I can slow down, when I can get in tune, and then, like, really listening to our instincts, like you did on that mule deer, like, making these decisions to get in back, and maybe he'll circle around, and you're in the right center, and maybe you didn't think about all those decisions, that you start having to make so many that they, you just almost have to listen to your gut, and listen to your instincts as you're in there, but I think really slowing down, and, and slowing down your human impact in the woods, I think, uh, really getting in tune with your environment and trying to stay quiet and move slow. And, and I just notice, like, you know, these, these ungulates, they pick up on movement so well. And, and it's like if you can just slow down and if you can get comfortable with being in bow range, like we almost always have more time than we think. And if you can keep that element of surprise on an animal and just watch a mule deer being a mule deer, an elk being an elk, when they have no idea humans within a – 10 mile radius of them like that's a beautiful thing you don't need to rush it at that point like they're just going to be animals and going to move along and flow with that country and, and if you're moving slow with you know no extra movements and you're not giving yourself away and you're okay and comfortable with just sitting there in a crouching stance as these animals feed by and you don't move and don't give yourself away it's amazing how much time you have and how many things together so i really think you're on to something with this uh, the energy that you're talking about, and it's a bit of an abstract thought, but there is definitely something there. There's a sixth sense that these animals are in tune with that us humans have kind of lost in our modern day and age. Yeah, I think, you know, we all wear camo for a reason. We know it works to mimic or look like your environment. And so if our actions match our environment, then I think that's the modern terminology for 
how our energy impacts the environment. So if we move at the same frequency or pace of nature, that's the ultimate camo. That's your decision. Then the camo that we're wearing is an added layer of security, of blending into the environment. But you could wear all the camo you want. And if you're running across an open hill, hillside, you know, the animals are going to pick you up. And, you know, another frequency or energy that's there is, is our own scent. And to animals, we smell disgusting. So they they run away like, you know, like it's it's the worst thing ever. And so um, I've just kind of learned that, you know, if I want to have the ultimate camo, I have to match the environment. And when I've been hunting, it seems like the minimum amount of time that I got to be in a landscape is at least two to three days. And I notice a significant change in who I am and how much I speak and how 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 much I even my scent changes over time in hiking and effort and drinking water and behaving more like a natural animal. And so, um, you know, the longer we spend in an environment, the more we become it. The, the, the best power that humans have are that we are the ultimate chameleon. Think about it. I mean, you are a byproduct of your environment. If you were born in a different country, you'd probably be a different person. And so I think the ultimate quest for every hunter, every outdoorsman, um, for every diver is at the end of the day, have you found a version of yourself that's timeless? It's such a difficult question because, you know, we are who we are today. But I think the time that we spend in nature in an environment that is timeless, that's pure, that's never going to change. Well, it changes. But in terms of how it behaves, it doesn't change. Um we redefine ourselves again and again and again in those environments. And so the more environments we can learn from, ultimately, it serves us well because we become a better human being. We understand our purpose better, but we also become a better hunter or diver or spearfisherman or whatever it is that you're doing in nature. If you're a wildlife cinematographer, you're learning more about these animals. You're slowing down to a pace which you see the details of life. And you're tuning into an environment that they're actually teaching you. The animals are teaching you how to be a part of that. And that's what's so significant. And I think it's it's so beautiful to have that complex mix of emotions when you succeed, because it's like the acceptance of initiation into that mountain range or that ocean that you've decided to become a part of. And you've chosen um, – what animal you're going to become. And as hunters, we've become predators, right? And we're, we're, we are a pure accepted predator in that landscape when we succeed. And we've succeeded not by jumping out of a car and shooting it, but working that environment and earning every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true. It, um, yeah, I, I like, like uh, you're so spot on. Like I, I love what you first stated about the camo and blending in, but the real camo is how we act in that in that natural environment. Like the the way we react. Like I had, you know, a, a buck that uh, I was able to get on and harvest. Like in this new state, new environment for me. And um, him and his buddy, like there was two bucks, and they walked by me and my cameraman, and I was. You know, I was able to catch them first, and I was playing this game of cat and mouse in these canyons and coolies. It was just super fun. The stock lasted for hours. And um, they came by me at one point at like 70 yards. And 
uh, I kind of saw them starting to head my way. I got crouched down. It's like a total white environment. Like my camo doesn't blend in at this point. Like sure, it's the right shades of sagebrush and, you know, it is good color and it is good camo. Don't get me wrong, but it's a white frozen landscape. But I was able to crouch down before they saw me and they just crossed it a 70, 100 yards and just walked by me and, and, you know, maybe would look in our direction, but never picked me out, never picked my camera out so two humans crouched down in this environment and just being in tune and able to stop moving and they just cruise by and i wait till they get over top the next ridge line and then i make my move over there but really uh the the movements you make in this environment is the best camo you can have and and i'm with you as you start to like change to this environment like you said two, three days minimum before you're in tune with that environment. I feel that too, till I can get in beat with like nature itself. And then I love how you stated, like you start to become part of that environment, part of that predator in that environment. And I just feel almost like an animal, like this elk season, I was taking dirt naps where you start to kick out a flat spot and kick out some soft dirt and then roll on a ball and then sleep for an hour out there. And you're just living in this this environment, in this dirt. And also, like when you don't come back to a camp or when you're just like really immersed in that environment for an extended time, like, uh, you know, whether that's multiple days or but you you it does change you. And and we are not the same people that we were a month ago or a year ago or like each one of these hunts changes us a bit a bit. And you you said it as well as like, you know, hunting these these different environments, these different species, these different challenges, it improves us. Like it improves us as hunters, but also improves us as as people and improves our perspective on things. But um there's just nothing more fun in there than like you're totally immersed in the challenge at hand, whether you're free diving or whether you're bow hunting, when you just totally immerse yourself in that environment and in that challenge. And it is a bit different than just hiking into nature because we are like engaging in this predator prey relationship when we're free diving or when we're bow hunting. Uh, but yeah, man, it's really fun to, to hear you talk and hear some of your theories on it because, um, you're definitely on to something. And I think like that perspective that you've gained from free diving and being in the water with those, uh, with the white sharks or with those fish and you're really, uh, you know, immersed in this challenge of trying to get one with a spear on your own breath floating around in that ocean like that is a really strange environment to get comfortable with and i think you you've been able to like uh transition that onto land and into your bow hunting as well yeah i mean i think you know when i'm holding my breath and i'm trying to accomplish i mean it, it feels to me just like archery i'm i got a spear and I'm shooting at something and I'm ambushing sometimes or I'm stalking or I'm sitting and waiting. Sometimes I'm up in the water column in the kelp stalks like I'm in a tree stand. Sometimes I'm hiding in a crack like I'm in a ground blind. I mean, to me, it's like the perfect transition. But what I noticed that was amplified for me was my comprehension of time. And I think for those listening, if you've ever been in the woods and your time warped or time felt like it stood still or it was longer or you're in that decisive moment and you don't remember pulling the trigger because time was compressed. That's when you're, you're learning from the environment, you're tuning in, you're a hundred percent tapping in. And that's where the real change begins because you've brought yourself to the edge 
of mindfulness, you're purely in the moment and you've lost track of this man-made thing that we call time. And um, so that's what I look for when I'm hunting. When I go on these trips, I always wonder, you know, do I want to kill a giant on the first day or do I want to get, you know, beat up and grind it really hard and blisters all over my feet and get it on the last day? Well, normally I'm torn, but I'd rather have the latter. And I don't want to get to the end and then not be successful because that's a tough pill to swallow. We all have to go through it. But if I have my choice and I could write the ending without knowing it, I'd always write it like that. Yeah, that's good insight. I, I would do the same. Like uh, that uh, uh, spear fishing, like what a challenge that is, huh? To um, uh, it, It's got to be a bit overwhelming when you started it to be able to even know where to look or how to find fish or how to ambush. Like um, is a lot of that self-taught as well? And like uh, is it is it like bow hunting where experience is the best teacher you learn from people and you learn from listening and reading and things but really getting out there and doing it uh, teaches you what works and what doesn't so it's a combination of both and to add a predecessor to that um, I'm fortunate that my ancestors are from the Azores Islands I'm Portuguese and so my father uh, was a diver my ancestors were all fishermen so I think there's a little bit of salt water in my blood um, and he got me into it at a very young age, but I never really took it seriously until high school because my buddies and I would we'd go on a camping trip and we'd have plenty of beer, but we'd have nothing to eat. So I'd jump in the water and shoot a couple lingcod or rockfish. And at the time we can get abalone and uh, we'd have beer and food. So that was a great combo. And it was just a lot of fun camping. And it was kind of the beginning stages of the outdoorsman emerging from me because that first time you catch something and you serve it to someone that's hungry and they enjoy it and you're experiencing the bonfire and the outdoors and the music and the camaraderie, um, you know, I don't know how you, you cannot be hooked. And so that's where it started. And um, in my adult life, I kind of still continued with it, but um, I didn't know it was going to take me as far as it, as, it, as it did. But I got a job working at a dive shop because I, I just thought, you know, this would be really cool um, to kind of have a dream to shoot a big tuna one day. And maybe I could do that here. And, and the person that, that was my manager was a great spear fisherman and kind of got me into a lot of the cinematography. And I wrote articles for like 20 something different publications, um, ended up you know, getting the opportunity to work as a wildlife cinematographer. I competed in spearfishing at one point. Um, became a national spearfishing champion, got a bunch of world records, uh, went through all of that, and then really had to sit down and ask myself, why am I doing this? What's the purpose? Is that fish a bunch of points for me? Is that fish an article? Or is that fish just going to be a gripping grin? And it took me back to those high school memories. I said, I really love cooking, but I don't think I'm cooking this stuff the way it, it ultimately can be. I think that the best food in the world is na nature made. We don't need something that humans had an impact into to make it good. We just got to learn how to manipulate that product and have a fantastic food. Like I just learned for the first time last year, um, I've never been really hunting turkeys because I just thought they taste they were like rubber, too chewy. And so I've been hunt, uh, hunting with a young mentor, uh, young kid that I was mentoring, and he got a turkey, and I'm like, you know what, we're gonna pressure cook this thing. And the pressure tenderized it, and it made the best enchiladas. And I love mushroom foraging, so we went out and collected a bunch of chanterelles. We came back, we sautéed those up, we reused the bones, and we made the most amazing 
turkey soup. And it was more like a bisque. So I thickened it up and added some lobster, ultimate surf and turf. And um, so, yeah, I had to come back to the roots of what hunting meant to me, what spearfishing was. And it, it didn't have points on it. It wasn't the photo necessarily. I was sponsored by the largest dive companies in the world. And so I, you know, to a certain extent, I still needed to put out good content. Um, but it was my connection to nature, connection to the food and com- connection to the community. And I didn't want the spirit and energy and beautiful nature of that animal to be forgotten. And so I wanted to continue sharing that with people. Man, that's beautiful. Yeah, I think um, we have to do things for the right reasons. And sometimes we have to look inside ourselves like we have to figure out uh, what is our drive or what is our enjoyment with it. And I think we can get caught up in, you know, like like we all like to shoot mature animals. And sometimes my goals revolve around that. But ultimately, I want the best experience. I want the adventure. I want to go immerse myself in that habitat. And whether I'm successful or not, like I want to go have an adventure. You know, that's that's where I find my pure joy, my uh, my my enjoyment, my reason for doing it. And I think sometimes we have to look at that and and um, you know try to be honest with ourselves of of why we're doing it. Like why are we uh, going to this place or chasing this animal or why do I have this stipulation to shoot this animal? Is this to impress somebody else or is this for my pure enjoyment and love for it and it, uh, immersing myself, you know, in this wild place, really pushing myself physically and mentally like that's what I truly love. And so, like, I think we all have to do a bit of that soul searching along the way to figure out our reason why and to make sure you know, we don't ruin it. Like I know with Eastman's, I've been really honest with them. And I've told Ike, the the president of the company, that I don't want to film every hunt. Like I enjoy filming it. I enjoy capturing it. I enjoy sharing it with family and friends. But there's a, a bit of that that turns into a job or turns into pr- to stress or pressure uh, that, you know, Sure, I can do that for a couple hunts a year, but I also need to just go hunt for myself. Like I I love spending time with friends and I love sharing hunts with friends, but I also love solo bow hunting. You know, I love going out by myself. Like when you're alone with your own thoughts out there, like you can't really hide from yourself and you're able to kind of reflect upon your life and gain perspective. So Man, I think it's super important that we all find that reason why. And just because we're really good at something doesn't mean that that's uh, what we do because we love it. Like, I think you have to find that love for it, just like uh, like you have, like reconnecting with your spearfishing and really doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, and when you're when you're talking about all that, it it just brought back your one of your recent podcasts where you got that goat, mm-hmm. and I think that was an opportunity where. You know, you you had seen a lot of big animals, but ended up harvesting a nanny. And um, that was one of my favorite podcasts because in life, we're not always dealt the hand that we want. And in the end, um, upon the result of that hunt, you had to reflect and think, what what was I being given? You know, whether you're spiritual or not, if you are like, why did God give me that? And you have to think deeply as to what that lesson was. And the pure joy of hunting, it doesn't have anything to do with the size of the animal. And the more you realize that, it feels like bigger animals show, show up. And this, <laughs> no short of that for me. And I remember um, on the elk hunt that I did this year, um, ended up harvesting a nice mature six point. 
my brother and I, um, we pretty much had an idea of how to get this big bowl. And I'm, I'm actually kind of uh, curious to share it with you because I, I wonder what your thoughts are on it. So this this whole conversation so far has revolved around how to match the environment. And this is the one time I was like, you know what? We got to step outside of that. He's like, what are you talking about? It was pretty comical. So this bull would bugle in the same canyon every day. And he'd bugle right around like 10, 11 o'clock. And every time we try to drop down there, we'd be forced back out because the wind would just swirl. And I'm like, he's such a growler. He's a good bull. He's the biggest bull in this particular drainage. So I'm really stoked to chase the mature one. I'll be happy to shoot a small one if that's all I can get. But I'm going to try for this guy. And every time I'd try, the wind would be swirling. And I, I was like, there's just no way to kill him in there. It's an impossible location. And I'm like, you know what? Pull out all your food. And he's like, why? I'm like, we've got to eat all of our food in hopes that one of us can rip ass and send it down there to push him out of here. And so eventually it happened. And we just had the best time. We were laughing. It was just a good time. And that bull started bugling further and further away. So we got on the opposite ridge and we were just running down this ridge in the tree line, looking across, watching him until the sun went down. And he went right to where I thought he would go. And the next day we got up and we sat on this knob listening over that drainage where he was in the day before. And we're like, he's not in here. 10 o'clock came by, no sound. I'm like, okay, we got to move to the next location. So we moved to the next location on this wallow. And I'm like, he might come here, but I still think he's going to go to this other lake. And sure enough, around three o'clock, we could hear a distant bugle. I'm like, that's got to be him. We're just going to keep listening until that bugle moves. And sure enough, we heard it move and it moved further away. I'm like, we got to go. Let's run. We got to cover a lot of ground. It's in a unit that has a lot of beetle kill. So hard to move in that country. And there's a finger that runs down the ridge to a knob. And he had to go around that. It was like a pinch point. He had to go around that to get to this lake. And by the time we were on that finger, I mean, we could clearly hear where he was going. And we just snuck in there quietly. And right when we got to the knob, I'm kind of now I'm tuning in to matching my environment. I'm moving slow. I'm doing everything right. The wind's in my face, but it's on the ridge. He's right below me. It's also in his face. So that's that whole like shaving off a piece of the pie for yourself, but giving him the advantage to think that he's winning the game. And, and so I'm, I'm right there on, on the ridge. I'm looking down, take my next step. My brother goes, your bull's right there. And there was actually two bulls. Um, I had gotten a quick shot on camera of, of a big five by five that had gone through through an area that we could just see because I was in a tough area where there was not a lot of visibility, not a whole lot of glassing. It's kind of like Western Oregon, uh, which I love hunting. Anyways, um, so he passed and then his cow passed and then the big one was behind. Um, you probably know that better than anyone that the big ones like to stay in the back. And so I was already at full draw and I was able to guess the range correctly. He was at 33. I shot for 30 and got a good shot. He died right by the by the lake. So it was pretty cool. But in that circumstance, knowing that I needed to go outside of matching the environment and let a strong whiff of sand down the canyon to push him out of an impossible spot was something I had never thought of doing until I realized this is an impossible bull and I'm either going to push him out of here or I'm not going to get him. It's... Um... It's got all the makings for a great story. Uh, good on you, Dan. Congratulations on that bull. But yeah, man, you did so many things, right? Like it's uh, 
creative thinking. It's outside the box thinking. It's like the problem solving. Like that's what bow hunting is. A lot of these animals are are so keen and so crafty from surviving years in this environment with other hunters chasing them, mountain lions chasing them. Like they get really good at at surviving. They get really good at making the right moves. And how many times have I heard a guy tell me a story of a bull that needed to take one more step? Or a bull that stopped right before he came into my window. or it, And again, it ties back to that sixth sense that you're talking about, is that they can almost feel your energy there and know not to make that move. But in that same breath, like a lot of these these bulls are so tough to kill, these bucks are so tough to kill, that that's what it takes. It takes like this this problem solving this outside the box like playing into their uh their weaknesses rather than their strengths and so many times i'm on a buck that feels like it's impossible that i can kill this buck but if i keep theorizing and i keep thinking and i come up with some of these ideas like there was a buck in colorado that i didn't kill uh but i spent three days um, with inside 120, 150 yards of him waiting for him to make a mistake, and he wouldn't make that mistake. And pretty soon I like had to think about this scenario again. and like, what if I could come over top of that 13,000-foot peak up there? What if I could slip right down by those rocks and get down to him in his bed where he's bedding every day in there? And the next day that's what I did, and I found myself within 45 yards of him and uh, and and didn't end up getting the buck. I ended up sending one right over his back. I was really patient, waited for the shot, and actually like – um, just skipped over his back like a, a elevation bow shooting a bit high shot execution who knows but the the point of it was is like that thinking outside the box that problem solving that is so crucial to finding success and exactly what you did on that bull letting your wind drift in there you know being noisy or laughing with uh, uh, your buddy on the ridge or whatever the case is but almost spooking him out of his home so you could go chase him in a better environment where you could get things in your favor um Man, it's just great. That's like uh, that's what bow hunting is, man. And congratulations on that and that giant blacktail you killed, man. That thing was an absolute specimen. Yeah, that buck was something else. I thought he was dead. I had seen him four years prior, and uh, he was a tank at that point. I mean, really tall, great mass, everything. Um, and like blacktail do, I mean, they all have different personalities, but the ones that get big, they've got a personality to hide and disappear and i don't know where they go it's super tough to figure them out um some some of them are are patternable kind of like mule deer and i don't know why but this guy disappeared and um so the the following year there's a nice five by five that i was chasing and um i couldn't get him so i ended up taking a three by two and then um last year i was i was chasing a, a buck that had similar mass similar height um similar width and big brisket, you know, heavy, mature buck. And I put in a hundred hours, um, hunting this buck. And I only had one glimpse of him 15 minutes before legal shooting light. And, um, I was at full draw, but couldn't see my pins. It was illegal. It was just like, okay, let down. Um, maybe I'll get him next year. So I came back actually this year, hoping to get him. Um, went through most of the season without a whole lot of success, just seeing a lot of good, small up and coming bucks. Um, Definitely a, a location that's kind of like a nursery. You know, it's got a lot of deer in it all the time. So this year when the weather changed and, and it got cold, 
and we've had a good year with a lot of feed and a lot of water. Last year was such a wet year for California. Um, and I've heard this, it might have been on your podcast, but I've also realized it is that on those years with good feed and good water, it compresses the estrus cycle and the rut. And on years that have a drought, it seems like that rut lasts longer. You'll have a couple animals popping into estrus and then the bucks are chasing and then it chases and chases and chases. And that rut will seem to last longer. But this year it was really condensed. And luckily it came in at a perfect time where we still had a couple of days in the season and he just showed up. And I had a trail camera out on this kind of like creek bed that he would, that animals walk through every day. And he showed up two days prior. So I was really hopeful that I'd have the opportunity at getting him. And as, as the area started to fill in with animals, I, w- I normally would have been in a different location, but the wind seemed wrong and uh, there was sign of deer in the area. So I didn't want to go and pressure him out. So I decided I would sit in a new location and kind of brush myself in making kind of a makeshift ground line and, and um, right at sunset as a doe was walking past me, he popped out maybe 90 yards away. And it was normally at, at that time of day, you know, you want to pull your binoculars out and look and see the antlers, but there was nothing to be seen. You know, I didn't have to look twice. I mean, his antlers were so abnormal for this area. Um, crazy, crazy mass. I mean, I kind of like three points. I think they're cool for a blacktail and mule deer should at least be a four, but three points are unique. And what I love about them is the record books kind of push you away from three points. And so that makes me want them even more because you lose four measurements on a three point. So I, I like funky, weird bucks. I love high and tight bucks. I love bucks with mass. I just want to shoot an old buck and I'm not going after any particular record or anything. And this was a buck I definitely wanted to get knew he had to be at the end of his, his end of his life. And he just came right to that dough, 23 yards, perfect shot. Uh, he died 20 yards away. So it was pretty, pretty exciting. I still didn't realize um, how big he was. And I don't I don't think a, I, I was frustrated because I know how to take photos. I can make, make things look big and I can make things look small. I know exactly what I'm doing. I've been doing it for 10 years as a wildlife cinematographer. But I could not find an angle to make it look natural, but still give the full appreciation of the size. Because every time you look at the photo and then see it in person, it seemed bigger in person. And um, so I was kind of shooken up when I walked up to him and realized what he was. It's probably a once in a lifetime buck out here for me. No, he's absolutely unreal. Yeah, the mass and the height. And I'm with you. I I like those. Um, I like a big three point, whether it's a muley or not. Like as long as he's big, old, and mature, that's character to me. And um, that buck is just unreal. He's got just mass on mass and so tall. And I I think you did an amazing job with your photos, but I didn't get to see the buck in person. But he looks so impressive. He just looks uh almost cartoonish. Like uh he's just so heavy and so tall. Yeah, that is an unreal blacktail. It's um. Uh, you know, they there's scores and there's record books, but um, uh, boy, there's like a, a a buck like that is definitely a once in a lifetime man, or at least a a really special buck. Like, um, uh, yeah, that's crazy, man. It was really fun to look at the photos. That thing's absolutely unreal. Well, when you come out to California, um, 
to go spear fishing or to go pig hunting. That's one of my favorite things to do out here. He'll be up on the wall, so you get to see him in person, along with some other real nice animals. But um, yeah, I I, I did definitely didn't want to forget. You asked a question about um, it was a while back now about you know what are the right steps to take and how did you learn spear fishing? Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to use a lot of the mistakes that I made in learning spear fishing with how I was going to progress as a hunter. I think there's a lot of people out there that don't have any particular mentorship and they're really curious. You know, how do you go about it? How do you become a world class spear fisherman how do you become a world-class hunter and with spearfishing i figured it out and i'm like you know what i can apply that same recipe and i'll see where hunting takes me um but you know i have my goals to where i want to be in hunting i'd like to be at the same level of, as a hunter as i as i've gotten to as a diver and so you could spend your whole life trying to become a good diver and be with the wrong crowd of people and get stuck doing things the same way it's it happens constantly in hunting. They go to the same hunting camp year after year after year, and you can never really push the boundaries of who you are, your equipment, and what you're capable of to learn. The ultimate goal in, in either of these is to learn as much as you can in a condensed period of time and get rid of all the bullshit. You need to figure out what's working. And if it's working, but it's not the best, you need to keep improving it. So in diving, the first thing you want to do is connect with someone that can help you with your gear because you can spend a lot of money and a lot of time getting the wrong gear. Um, and a lot of people will get into free diving thinking that scuba gear is fine for it. And maybe there's a couple pieces of gear that would work, but it's really specialized. Again, it comes down to, you know, being really intentional with your movements and getting the maximum performance out of those movements. So it's, it's the same reason why, like hunting gear and hunting boots have progressed so much in the last 20 years, because if you're out there wearing your blue jeans, hiking up a steep mountain, you're not very efficient with your movements in your legs. You're going to get tired sooner. You're not going to be able to go as hard or as far or be as comfortable. And it's the same thing with boots. If you went from like a good pair of Justin boots to a nice pair of Krispies or um, Zamberlands, you know, it's a big difference. And the lighter your boots are, the further you can go. So if you're wearing big clunky boots, they might be comfortable for short spurts, but they're not going to be ideal for long distance hiking and deep backcountry work. And so I, I like your philosophy on boots, too. I've listened to it quite a bit. And um, sometimes I, I have that tendency to want to wear light boots to get in and then switch to heavy boots back there. But you don't always have that luxury. So, again, understanding that the gear is a big factor of it and it's 100 percent controllable by you. And then there's technique. And for technique, you really have to ask yourself, what's the hardest part in what I'm doing? And how can I define that to the critical attributes of what needs to happen versus all the extra movements that's happening? So what can I cut out? Can I cut out half the movements that I'm doing and get the same result or better? And with water, you'll realize very quick because of the hydrodynamics that by removing those movements doesn't just make it more more efficient and comfortable for you but you have better performance because you don't have your arms sticking out or your body in a bad posture swimming with your head like this. It takes a lot of drag. So if you translate that to hunting, you get your equipment dialed in, um, you get your technique dialed in, but then you also need to learn your landscape. And that's where I think having a balance between two styles of hunting is really important. And so for scouting nowadays, I used to spend a lot of time pre Google earth looking at, charts and maps and trying to figure out where the best spots are and currents and all these things. So now we can spend a lot of time on the internet. There's great resources. Your podcast is a phenomenal resource. 
Um, I've listened to a lot of podcasts to become a better hunter. And so, um, but once you're in the environment, you need to accept that if there's no animals where you are, move as fast as you can. Get away from it until you pick up the sign. And so if you're hunting elk, it's pretty easy. I mean, once you smell an elk, you'll never forget it. And uh, you don't have to know what their footprints look like that much to smell them and to see their poop and to see rubs and all this stuff. And so you can move really fast, pick up some sign, and then begin to slow down. And once you get in that environment, then match and mimic that environment to get the ultimate camo. So for diving, it's very much like that. If I'm hunting, let's say, a white sea bass, that's a good example of a of a fish species that reminds me of like spot and stock and hunting deer. So you're swimming through these beautiful kelp forests and you're cruising along and you're not seeing a whole lot. But then you get to a junction where maybe the kelp has a corridor this way and one that way. And there's barracudas and bait and the bait are missing scales and they're all cut up and chewed up. And there's a little bit of life happening there. That's the opportunity to hide and get camoed and sit in the kelp and wait to see if something comes cruising by. Um, but we have that third dimension, and we do play with that a little bit in the elk woods too or in the in the deer country, which is the vertical aspect of hunting. And so knowing that temperature, it's the same for hunting. Knowing that temperature has a lot to do with where the animals are going to be and what food source is there uh, tells you exactly where you need to be in that third dimension. So if I'm at a, if I have a thermocline, then I know those fish are going to be right below it or right above it or cruising through it. And the bait will show me exactly where I need to be. The bait will come right up to it or sit above it. And so if I'm at the junction, so now I've got my 2D, 2D positioning figured out, then I've applied the 3D dimension and I know exactly what depth to dive to, to hunt. And when we're hunting in the mountains, which is what I applied, I'm like, well, if I do that for spearfishing, it's going to work perfect for hunting. And so I look at the mountain. I said, okay, well, where's the temperature change? And what is it doing? Like out here on the coast, um, it's real foggy at night. And I don't think the deer like that that much because they don't have good sense of smell. The smell gets muffled in that fog, drippy environment. And so they actually move up to the top of the mountain where there's good thermals above the fog and it's a lot warmer. So you cross through that. Even if the fog's not there, you cross through it and you feel that change in the thermocline and the deer are on that level and they're just all piled above it. And so, yeah, your your environment's probably real similar. Yeah, that's um, it's so interesting. You are getting keyed into where the animals are are at, and like uh, I bet the uh, ocean is the same as the the mountains or the prairies. Uh, there's a lot of country where the game is not. There's a lot of country where the the deer not, the elk are not, and that's also information that you have to process. Like a a big part of my learning an area isn't just where I'm finding animals, it's also where I'm not finding them. And again, like that that being able to theorize and think and come up with a theory about the fog and the way the animals can smell and I always see animals that are right above the fog like all of a sudden you're able to tap into something that maybe not all hunters are thinking about or doing and you're able to consistently put yourself into those animals and create those opportunities and I think that's the same thing that I do is like when we started talking you made some really good points, so I definitely went down some rabbit holes that were really interesting, but you started talking about unlocking the keys to your environment, and like like so much of this is like there's going to be clues along the way that you have to key into, that you have to theorize, and then you have to prove your theory right or wrong, 
and so much of learning these new areas is immersing yourself in that and seeing like this latest place I was like down in the ag fields and down in the flats I wasn't seeing animals and I actually thought through e-scouting I was going to find a lot of these animals on these mountaintops like in these mountains and so I went to the mountains and then there's no tracks or sign there there's no deer up there as well and and, and so you know my first couple plan a plan b i didn't see any critters or any animals and i'm in this new environment i've just got to figure it out and now down in the ag and down in the bottoms i'm not seeing any critters as well and, and then the few deer that i did see were in this like rolling foothill country with um you know those canyons and coolies did a lot of undulation and topography and they actually didn't like the thick trees up top they wanted to be in this open country but then there was you know these cottonwood thicks or like stunted cottonwoods in these bottoms and they were using those for cover and so i started to once i started to key into that i started to find more deer and then i could transpose that location to other locations looking for more of this foothill rolling country with the same look the same feel as where I'm finding deer and all of a sudden I'm just able to take this whole state and I'm start to to narrow it down of where I'm looking and where I'm keying in and it's you know it's not based on exact black and white or literature that I've read this is all just what I'm observing and what I'm seeing and then being able to apply it and seeing where you know I had a fresh snowfall I'm able to look at tracks I'm able to look at all these things and pretty soon I'm able to key into this environment where all of a sudden I'm seeing 20, 30, 40 deer a day and I'm seeing multiple bucks. And now I can go five miles down the road or five miles up the mountain and there's nothing. But now I'm keyed into this environment where all these deer are interacting with that habitat. And I think that's such an important piece of the puzzle. And that's something that you're really taking from your spear diving and applying to your hunting and why you've seen so much success doing it. And I think the same way is we're all just just evolving and learning and trying to get better at this process. But I think the more we can understand it and tap into it and use that information out there and really key into the environment of the where the animals like and why they're there, like just the more opportunities we can create and then in turn, the more success we see. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah. Um, going back to that point of just massive landscape, you know, um, you, on e-scouting, everything seems so small. You put your points way too far apart. At least I <laughs> And I'm like, oh, I'll hike there. Then I, and then I, get it. I can go between point A and point B in a week, and I've got like 10 other spots to check out. So, so the fastest way that I realize for a hunter that's new to an area to find animals is to immediately go to where there's an edge of environment, so a shift from one environment to another that's at the confluence of multiple drainages. So if there's multiple things coming in, so they've got food, um, shelter, and breeding all able to take place in the same area, I hunt them on the edges of where they're going to transition in and out from their bedding to their their feed or from day to night. And so it's the same thing with spearfishing. If you're hunting a kelp forest, go to the edge. If you're hunting current, go to the edge of that current. Go to the edge of the temperature. Go to the edge of the reef. And that's where it all happens. If you just go spearfishing out in the blue ocean, you're never going to see a fish. There's nothing out there. <laughs> condensed in one area and, and going back to the theory of frequency, um, the frequency of how the ocean moves in the coastal areas happens to be a very similar frequency or very healthy frequency to the human body. 
it vibrates very similar to to how we do. And so if you're feeling off and you spend time in that environment, it'll get you right. And the salinity of the ocean and the composition of how much water there is to land mass is very similar to what we need. So our pH, our ideal pH is 7.5. The ocean's right around 8. And that's like what we always want to do is have a little bit more uh, of a higher pH to, to bring us back to 7.5 because a lot of the foods we eat, sugar, pork, food, all this stuff, meats, it's all low pH. Um, and then our ideal frequency is kind of right there again, 7.5 hertz. And with the motion of the of the waves, the time that we can be in the water, it's not like 20,000 hertz of energy with big waves. And it's not the smallest flat, like sterile ocean. It's right in there at 7.5 too. Um, so it's really fascinating that if we think about who we are as as a as an entire being, the environment we live in matches us or we match it. And so all we have to do is get in tune with who we are and make sure that it aligns with the environment. And we're going to learn a lot more about who we are, where our place is, and we're going to have a better life overall. That's what I feel. Mm-hmm. And there's just um there there's just more to it, right? There's like a there's just more to this life and there's more going on than I think we realize or that we can um, tap into. Like you've done a really good job uh, uh, of tapping into to who you are and, and how you can interact in these environments and being able to dial them in and figure them out. I, I think that's um, I think that's a really good quality. I think when we can take time and think about these things and these theories and some of these outside the box ideas, I think there's a lot to it. And I think there's a lot going around. There's a lot going on around us that we don't realize. But if we sit and think about it or if we sit and pay attention to it, we can learn from it. And um, uh, I, I just think uh, – I just really like your approach and the way you think about spearfishing and the way you apply that to, to all facets of your life. And, you know, we've talked about bow hunting and talked about spearfishing, but you you also uh, are a contractor and run job sites. And we talked about that before we started the podcast. I really like your approach to it. Yeah, thank you. And um, one other thing that's really great for those that maybe don't want to kill an animal, but want to spend time in the landscape and still be a hunter, um, I have a severe addiction to understanding mycology and learning about gourmet edible mushrooms. Um, Colorado is happens to be a great place for mushroom picking, uh, porcinis, which is the Boletus edulis or Boletus eris and chanterelles and chicken of the woods and lion's mane and all these great, great mushrooms. And ironically, I was hunting with a couple of buddies out in Western Oregon for Roosevelt elk. And every time I found chanterelles, it's a beautiful, delicious, meaty, sweet, phenomenal mushroom. I mean, you, if you've never eaten wild gourmet mushrooms um, and you're comparing them to um, an agaricus mushroom, a butt mushroom that you buy at the store, that's like comparing a sour green apple to a pineapple. Very different. So have an open mind if, if you're not a mushroom fan and you're listening in. Um, chanterelles are fantastic. But anyways, every time I stopped to pick them, I'd start finding elk shit. And then there's elk and the opportunities we had at killing elk, which I killed a real big one. It was up there in the top 10 in the state. Um, it was right there. Where we were picking mushrooms and my buddies at first were kind of laughing. Hey, you know, you've got, you got enough mushrooms in your bag, man. We got to keep going. But again, it slowed me down. I was matching the environment, perfect habitat for mushrooms, perfect habitat for elk. 
and um and while we were waiting to get some tenderloins on the on the on the plate we had mushrooms to cook and chicken of the woods which is super fantastic if you haven't had those those are really good easy to identify too are they oh man i've got to i've got to learn more like i know the morels and the the chanterelles but i don't uh, i'm embarrassed to say that i just don't know many of the mushroom species i was looking for uh the puffers this year in montana like my buddy knew how to identify those uh, and, and the mushrooms were crazy this year in Montana, more than I've ever seen as we had a really wet summer. Uh, so it was really healthy out there. But I am so interested in them, and I love having them for table fare as well. And so, you know, I think, like, a lot of this, like, it's the journey that's really invo- uh, enjoyable, not the end goal. Like, I love killing big bucks and chasing big bulls, and I love the challenge and being immersed in it. But really, it's the journey of getting there and the enjoyment of being in these environments and having these adventures. And I really like learning uh, the the different uh, uh, flora and fauna in an environment. And like where I was hunting this deer this weekend, I mean, I saw elk, deer, sharp tails. I saw antelope. Uh, you know, there, there's just this plethora uh, uh, of, uh, it's like such a game-rich environment, such a healthy habitat when I started to dial in and to hear, uh, you know, all the different um, game birds in through there, watch the hawks as they catch the, the air and they just soar feet above the ground looking to chase up mice or rabbits like uh, our blood brothers. They're hunters just like us and get to use that third dimension of being able to fly is pretty wild, you know, and I love taking all that in. Uh, but I do like to learn, like, just the different um, grasses and the different trees and the different mushrooms and especially the edible plant types like you're talking about, like the mushrooms. I'm so into it, man. And, like, um, uh, they only – they don't grow by accident either. It's like where those mushrooms grow, they grow in a really healthy habitat. Like everything has to be right to produce the the fruit of a, of a mushroom in a, in a certain place. So I think, like, dialing into that – Again, it's like dialing into your environment and figuring out like what it takes to produce those mushrooms. So um, I, I do need to learn uh, more of them, like uh, where I'm hunting and to be able to look for them more. So I need to spend a little bit more time doing that just so I can identify them because there was mushrooms everywhere this year elk hunting. It was crazy. And, uh, you know, I know the majority of them weren't edible, but I'm sure there's some edible ones that I just I, I wasn't good at identifying or didn't feel confident in. Yeah, it's not um, a hobby to take lightly, and it's not one to guess at and and experiment. Um, There's over 5,000 species of um, fungus in North America, and there's a very small upper 1-2% of gourmet mushrooms. And within those, there are a few lookalikes, but you can identify them quick once you learn the categories that they exist in. So, for example, if we were pulling out a basket of fruit, you have different types of apples, different types of oranges, whether it's a blood orange, it's a regular orange, it's a mandarin orange. Um, and, you know, maybe you have like apricots and uh, plums. They, they look similar, but they're different. So within that, you can identify, okay, this is um, the Belita species. Those are good. There's some that, are, that you don't want to eat, but those are good. And then there's um, the Amanita family, which those have uh, deadly mushrooms in them that you wouldn't want to touch, um, like the Amanita phylloides, that's the death cap. And so there are 
mushrooms within that family that are gourmet and edible. But I've chosen just out of my own security to avoid all amanitas. And when you learn the identifiable features of what an amanita is, it stands out like a sore thumb. And they don't look anything like a bolete. And so that would be similarly to comparing an apple to a plum or an apple to a pineapple. I mean, it's a big visual difference between how they look. And so you can learn it very quickly by classifying maybe five different genre species and then from there learning the subspecies within them. Oh, that's great, Dan. Yeah, I've got to do that. I've got to. We're in the information day and age. I've got to dive into that. But that's um, yeah, that's really good insight. Like I think um, that'd be a good way for me to approach it and start looking for them. And it's it's also a really great way, I think, for adults to interact with children in a natural environment. That's bringing the adult into childhood, and it's bringing the child into adulthood, and you're meeting in this weird medium in between. That's super playful. Because as a child, I don't think there's anyone that didn't enjoy Easter egg hunting. Um, naturally, our mind is programmed for puzzles. And so the better we are at figuring out puzzles, the more successful we are in life. If you think about guys that look at stock market every single day, all they do is figure out puzzles. They're looking for anomalies. And our ancestors, your ancestors, my ancestors, if we go far enough back, they were really good at at figuring out puzzles because that's how they survived. And so with hunting, it's all about identifying an anomaly or certain anomalies in a landscape that subconsciously might make you make a def- different decision. So my favorite species to hunt um, in the ocean is is the halibut because the halibut blends perfectly with the bottom. I mean, there's times when they're feeding and they're sitting on top of the sand, they stand out like a sore thumb, but when they're buried after a little swell and a little surge and that sand particulate has fallen on top of them, I mean, you'd be cruising along and you're just like, hold on, something caught my attention. You just see the absolute little one inch corner of a fin. And then you start scanning and scanning. You see the full depression, like, oh my God, there's the fish, you know, and it takes a while to find out where to shoot it. And that's my, my ultimate favorite fish to hunt out here because it's, it's utilizing my God-given gift as as um, as a human and a hunter to identify that one anomaly in miles of sand. That's really cool, and they eat really good too. Oh yeah, yeah, and they go good with all those mushrooms and all the stuff that we pick in in nature. So yeah, it's um, spending time learning how to identify the symbiotic relationships um, and have a passion towards that will keep allowing you to see and have a different perspective over that landscape. Um, and it'll progress. If, if you're a hunter, it'll progress you there. It'll make you better. Oh, a hundred percent, man. You're spot on. And well, and all these things that um, they continue to fuel our passions, like uh, uh, harvesting a halibut and cooking a good meal and mixing some mushrooms with it. Uh, it survived off that, off the sea, you know, off the, the bait fish and off that, off that environment. So we're really becoming our environment, you know, by fueling our passions with these animals. And I just know, you know, it's like me with these mule deer, like, gosh, dang it. Uh, uh, this uh, last one I harvested, you know, it's right prior to the rut. So just inches of fat on them, you know, and the, the meat is just so tender and good on those things, you know, and, and uh, use that to fuel my passion to go chase more. That's for sure. 
What what was that mule deer predominantly eating? Do you know? Mm, you know, I think they eat like a lot of grasses, but those deer are such browsers that they can live off sage, they can live off uh, grasses, and I think this year was a really good moisture year. So they had a really nutrient-dense feed throughout the summer, so they were really able to put on a bunch of fat, almost more than uh, than an average year. So I think it was like... I think it was a point of not exactly what they were eating, but their what they were eating uh, was such so nutrient dense because it kept uh, green throughout the season. What's your opinion on um, the edibility of fat on mule deer? Because I've compared it between whitetail and blacktail, and when I ate whitetail fat, like I tried to put some ribs on the Traeger, and it had quite a bit of fat in it. I was surprised that the butchers there they just throw the rib meat away a lot of times and i'm like no no no, i'm gonna use all that and when it came off the traeger real hot oh, i was like just so good but the moment it cooled down to my mouth temperature it was like candle wax just stuck all over my mouth and blacktail fat and i don't know if it's it's the choice in what they're eating or in the environment that they live in but that fat tastes a lot better i still trim a lot of the excess fat away and discard it especially if it's going to be frozen but, but when it's super fresh um Surprisingly, it's it's pretty darn good, and it seems like that fat melts at a lower temperature than whitetail fat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, I don't know so much about the comparison as I've had blacktail and whitetail, but I haven't paid too much attention to the fat content. But I, I'm the same. I don't uh, freeze and save a lot of it, but I do save some of it, and I do have some of it fresh, and I use it for cooking and things. Uh, uh, yeah, I think the, I think game fat is really good for us, especially how lean that game is. And I think it just adds like a, uh, just an added flavor to it and an added richness to it when you, when you're able to cook with it, when you're able to leave some of that on that meat. So when I pull it out, um, I, I think the, I don't think the fat keeps as good as the meat does, like in a, a freezer. Like I think it is definitely, uh, best use fresher within a few months of harvesting it doesn't seem like it keeps or it, it it's it has as good a flavor like uh later in the freezer life i've found but i do like it fresh have you found that same thing yeah um yeah. it i think it also depends on where you harvest the deer i mean there's california is a mega giant state i mean it covers the entire west coast so I found that the deer do taste different in different landscapes. Like if you shoot one out of an apple orchard, that right there is the best eating blacktail in the world, in my opinion. It's like apple pie. Um, so that that's a type of fat that I would love to eat. But if they're in really gnarly country chewing on sagebrush and bay laurels and just eating all this acrid stuff, I'm probably not going to keep as much of that fat. But ultimately, I think there's three things that, that comes down to – making sure that the meat tastes really good. Sometimes people are like, oh, I don't want to eat it because it's going to be gamey. And none of the animals that I'm harvesting are gamey. And I think it has to do with the preparation. So, um, you know, first, letting the, die, the animal die as peacefully as possible. You know, if you can get a good shot, not show yourself, not yell, not get excited, that's ideal. Let it die peacefully. Let it die in its environment. If it's got other animals around it, let them come by and say their farewells or whatever they do. It seems like it, it keeps a lot of the acidity down. Um and then getting that blood out. So um, we don't hunt sharks very often, but every once in a while we'll shoot like an angel shark. It's actually really good table fare. Um, and they live in the same environment as halibut. So on a bad day, that might be a good take. Um, but, you know, 
these animals, they, they pee differently than sharks, but sharks pee into their blood. So you got to get that blood out. So I always get the blood out of the animal right away. I want to get it out while it's still warm. Um, but then when I'm processing the animal, I've got pr- a pretty cool system that I can hang it. And I know not everybody has that opportunity, but I use a lot of sailing tackling gear that's lightweight and um, I can take it with me. So I always start the animal by the antlers. I, you know, um, open up the rear end so that it's disconnected internally. And then when I got it, the, the guts fall down and occasionally um, slip of the knife or whatever. You didn't grab it right, not paying attention. You'll pop that bladder. Well, at least you're at the bottom. And then I'll always have a water bottle and I'll just poke a an X in the top of my cap. And you can get a lot of sprays out of that same water bottle uh, before it's gone. So I'll rinse that out and then I'll move all the leaves from underneath it. If, if I've got them, we hunt under a lot of oak trees or different um, mixed conifers and there's plenty of duff. So we'll move that duff over and get the gut pile as far away as possible in an area that preferably has sun. So bees and, um, you know, uh, flies go over there. Um, and then I'll actually bring the animal back down. Then I'll hang it by the back leg and start peeling that off. And um, it, I've, I've never had a situation where it was real gamey. I would, you know, it's, it might be manly to do it with your bare hands, but I wear just a good pair of uh, nine mil um, rubber gloves and I keep my left hand on the hide, my right hand on my knife, and I just keep that clean. If I'm way deep in the backcountry, I've always got my pet camel pack and I can pull a little water out and spray it on my knife or spray it on my hands to keep it clean. And then um, if I have the luxury of getting it to ice or getting in a really cold environment, I don't have to put it in a game bag. Um, then I'll just start breaking it down in the subprimals and put it in Ziploc bags. And I, so I always know, you know, the back leg's going to have five primary cuts. You get your back strap, your neck strap, and your front shoulders. So um, I could be really efficient, really prepared, um, and then trying to get that meat as cold as possible and not let it touch any water from that point forward. So I've, I've had really good success with animals across the board tasting really well. I think sometimes people are worried about mule deer or blacktail. Uh, maybe not tasting as premium or as light as whitetail, but I think it can be done if it's managed right and there's a lot of intentionality with shooting the animal in a best-case scenario that you can get it to a north-facing slope or at least get on the north side of a tree, have a place to keep it cold. Um, we don't always have, have that luxury. In fact, the hunt I did in Big Sur this year was really tough um, in, in this one area where the animal died. I was with my brother, and uh, the animal that we got – it was just right before a cliff. And so I tied myself to a bay laurel before hanging the animal. And I did that exact thing where I touched the bladder and it squirt all over me. And um, I slipped, you know, but my rope caught me. It was that steep. Um, and it was pretty gnarly getting out with the meat. But we had to move quick to get it to an area with a lot of shade. And I remember just even cutting limbs of, of the bay laurel and putting them on an angle because the sun was setting and just trying to keep that shade on the animal because I mean, once you pull that trigger, you have this tremendous responsibility. I mean, if you're truly hunting for the food and you're not just hunting for, for horns, you have this tremendous responsibility to the animal to give thanks to it and to get that meat to a place that it's going to taste as good as it possibly can and then share it with people and enjoy the stoke of say, you know, seeing people freak out that they're enjoying this wild animal. Cause for, I mean, I live close to San Francisco and, 90 percent of the people i meet they've never even eaten wild game and to stoke them on that is pretty neat and to have conversations with vegetarians or what people might call the granolas um you know i 
I like pushing that limit and that edge and having deep, rich conversations with them. I'm not afraid of being authentic. I'm not afraid of who I am as a hunter. And I'm not afraid to listen to why they perceive it their way, but see if there's a way we can meet in the middle. And, you know, it might be that we just go mushroom picking together, but I love pushing those boundaries. Yeah, that's progression, man. That's uh, that's what we all need to do. And yeah, if uh, wild game, like gamey is something went wrong. It was either your butcher or your cook. If you take really good care of the meat, it's the most nutrient-dense, flavor-filled, organic protein on the planet. And, you know, I actually prefer mule deer over elk. Like mule deer some of my favorite. And, um, yeah, I, I've noticed that, you know, temperature control is huge on meat at 50 five degrees there's rapid bacteria growth in the meat so you know you have to get the hide off quick you have to get it cooled down and, and then you know the like you mentioned uh, not touching water like uh, i think keeping it dry when you can get that skin on the meat and you can get a bit of age on it and you know i don't age them for two weeks but i do like to age them if i can get two three four days but it, it's so important to keep it at that right temperature that 30 to 45 degree temperature is perfect and we have to be careful out here because it'll freeze sometimes we have to put it in coolers because it's too cold this last time it was two degrees where it'll freeze solid you know and then you're not getting the aging process but yeah it's so important that is the last respect of the animal is to really make sure that you're thorough on your butchering process and on your meat care to make sure that you get the best out of that meat because there should never be a gamey taste uh, in that meat and it's all my family has known as wild game since they my daughters were born and uh, since my wife's been with me and so they have no preconceived notions of what game meat should be other than delicious you know and so i have this responsibility to make sure that all of it's cared for correctly when you know when we eat it you know probably four to six days a week like that is what we have for our meat source so i can't ruin them on it you know so i have this responsibility to have to care for it my daughter killed a deer like a week ago and so you know that's just cherished and it's fun to sit around at dinner and go yeah katie this is this is your deer we're cooking up the backstrap tonight or we're cooking up the top round or whatever it is and then um you know also really trying to learn how to cook wild game like it's been an evolution for me too and i you know, when I first started out, you know, it was like I, I, I didn't know how to cook much or how to even cook wild game, but it overcooks so easy. But but when done correctly, it's got such good flavor and eats so well. So, yeah, man, that's like um, definitely part of the stoke for me and, and sharing it with people. And I, I bet you um, – like uh, uh, you get to get a bunch of enjoyment out of your food, both from um, the sea and from um, the mountains, which is pretty cool, man. I bet you it it brings you like a deeper appreciation for those animals for sure. One of my favorite, favorite things uh, that I've done with food, my buddy and I, so he's got a bunch of horses and mules and we did, we did some packing over here, deep, you know, backcountry stuff. And I bring in these huge, like, massive lobster tails way to the backcountry. And we'd cook it by these creeks and then leave the tails hanging in, in the trees, you know. People probably thought they were the biggest crawdads on earth, you know. <laughs> Funny. Um, but, yeah, we could take all the heavy stuff in when you got horses and mules. So we'd have lobster tails way in the backcountry. It's pretty cool. It's really cool. It's it's fun to share good meals with people. And it's – it. Uh, Meals seem to taste even better in the backcountry, don't they? Like, you don't have to be nearly as good a cook in the backcountry, and it still will blow people's minds. You know, it's always nice to have really good food in the backcountry. 
And it's really good for your gut too, because you could only eat so much like preserved foods and, and mountain houses or peak refuels before it just blows you up. So you got to have, um, what a lot of times what I'll do is I'll, we'll smoke and do like bluefin tuna jerky or yellowtail jerky. Oh, wow. And that'll hold for a whole week. Um, there's also a Mexican dish that I learned. I travel to 59 countries now, but I, I learned this one recipe that the captains would always have out on these like these small ponga boats, like fiberglass open boats. And uh, they'd go out and they didn't have, you know, their food in a cooler. They would just have it sitting out. And so they called it machaca. And it's basically just this shredded fish meat that's just cooked and cooked and cooked and cooked. And then they bring moisture back in with sauteed onions and then whatever, um, you know, sauce they're putting on top. There's a couple that are really good. And they would just wrap that in a tortilla. And that's really good. So sometimes I'll bring that in the backcountry as well, just to have something fresh and real and and not freeze dried, you know. Hundred percent, man. Real food goes a long ways in the backcountry. You want to feel like you feel every day. You don't want to change things up too much. Uh, so I'm with you, man. I try to have as much real food as I can have. Yeah, the grind is great, but comfort's great too. And I love that balance of just going hard, you know, giving all you have feeling really torn up and then coming back and at least having one little scotch for myself and one little, you know, something good to eat and, and some creature comforts, you know, a good pad, a good sleeping bag. It's, it's just wonderful. It makes you feel human. It can snap you back into uh, appreciation or a cup of coffee will do that to me too. It just makes me feel human, you know? So, uh, yeah, so it will, Dan, uh, I have really enjoyed the conversation, man. Um, I'm really glad we did this. We got to keep in touch and, uh, I got to have you on again. Um, congratulations on your season. Uh, you have such an awesome social media. I've really enjoyed following you over the years, uh, at free diving Dan. So yeah, man, keep that up. Any other place people can find you? Um, well, on Facebook and on Instagram, just add me as a friend. My page is private because as I've, um, enjoyed the outdoors and enjoyed, uh, everything that I have to offer, I really want the people to come in that want to be a part of it. And so I've chosen to just make it private, but I'll accept you. Just come on in and, uh, and friend me there. You can also check out my website, spearfishingisnotacrime.com. It's a little bit dated, but it's got a lot of my adventures back when um, I was progressing quickly as a spearfisherman. And, um, yeah, my email and my contact information is there. Um, I still do participate a little bit in teaching, although I found that I want really good, meaningful relationships with people. And I want to see and be a part of people's dreams. So the people that I do work with and teach, I teach them for an entire year. So that's typically one to two people, um, and it's really special. We usually become great friends. We travel to different places around the world together, and I get to be a part of the greatest journey of their life to really become the best. Whatever your goals are, I can get you there because I, I know how to do it in, in freedive spearfishing. Um, I'd be really pumped up you know, to have you come out to California to take you on an adventure. I've got all the stuff. I've got the boats. I've got all of it. Um, and while we're out here, maybe we can go look for pigs during the off season because it's a lot of fun. These pigs do taste really good out here. Uh, we make all of our own fresh charcuterie from scratch. It's fantastic. And um, yeah, so I think those would be the, the best ways to get a hold of me. I'm happy to share and help people. And for newer people that are getting into the sport, 
I love the curiosity of questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions because um, that's how you learn. And I try to respond to everyone. Man, that's beautiful. Yeah, thanks so much for the invite, Dan. Um, I'm definitely going to take you up on it. So we'll keep in touch and plan something in the future. And you got to come back on the podcast for me, too. You were great. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank you. It's very meaningful to me, too. Um, you are beyond legendary. I'm honored to be here. And uh, your contribution to this podcast and to the hunting community is is huge. So thank you, too. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. All right, yeah. Dan. Uh, let's close it off All for right. tonight. We'll talk soon. Okay. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye. All right, guys. That's a wrap. Fun conversation with Dan, and uh, thanks to him for coming on the podcast. And I always like like these outside the box topics that um, you know aren't aren't just overly discussed like on other podcasts or aren't overly discussed between other hunters. And Dan uh, has a unique perspective with his free diving experience with the water and what he's able to see and then take that into the mountain. So it just made for this really interesting conversation. So I really appreciate uh, him being on, really appreciate our sponsors for today's show. So um, Silencer Central, check out some of those silencers. Uh, check out Sig Sauer Optics, just incredible optics over there. Uh, check out um, Black Ovis Internet Retail Shop. Again, that promo code is Elevated10 to save 10% off your order. And also Camo Fire to save a pile of money on great hunting gear. I also want to thank Eastman's for all their support. Again, that tag hub, put in the promo code Brian. The Mule Deer course is BrianMDC. And um, everything we're doing over there as well. So a uh, bunch of things in the works. We're just going to wrap up hunting season here. It's been a great one for everybody over at the Eastman's office. Uh, you can check out my other podcast with Dan Picard, EBJ, or Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Life of a Bow Hunter. And, um, yeah, we just did a, a great question and answer on that one. So uh, you can tune in to the question and answer. There's some really cool stuff that came up. Uh, also want to thank you guys for your support of the podcast. And, um, man, the, the shares on Instagram, I always try to reshare those as I see them come up. So thanks for those for helping push the podcast and introduce it to other people or uh, introduce them to some good listening content. Also, the the ratings and reviews takes uh, uh, a few seconds to give us a five-star review or whatever you think we deserve there, um, like on the iTunes or what is that, where you listen to podcasts on your iPhone. I can't remember what they call that app or Spotify or any of them. It really helps out the algorithm. Uh, we got a new review this week, uh, so it comes from uh, Old Rice Guy. So I thoroughly enjoy listening to Brian's podcast, having grown up in the Arkansas Ozarks and now the Delta. His podcasts take me to places that I'd likely never be able to go. Uh, as a 74-year-old flatlander, Brian's enthusiasm and passion for Western hunting makes me feel like I'm with him. Best outdoor podcast, in my opinion. Oh, man, thanks so much. I really appreciate the review. It really helps us out. And, um, man, I think... Um, I think all these generations are getting younger. Like my dad's in his 60s and still pushing hard. And then you – like he can do anything he needs to do at work or recreating. It's just amazing to see as he's kept himself in really good health. 
you know, I'm in my early 40s. There's guys on the forefront uh, of really pushing human performance. Uh, you know, the Joe Rogans and uh, David Goggins and Cameron Haynes, Haynes. Like those guys are pushing hard to keep themselves in top physical fitness. And I just want to do the same. I'm like in my early 40s. And um, man, my body just feels great. Mind feels sharp and want to continue to push to be in the best shape I can. So um, kudos to Old Rice Guy and thanks a bunch for the review and thanks for listening into the podcast. We really appreciate it. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this podcast, get it out to you guys for next week, and then I'm out of here. Last hunt of the year for me. So um, they just got about a foot of snow or more in the mountains. Um, so we'll be battling some snow and cold, but the buck should be rutting hard and, uh, hopefully find a big heavy horned one to chase around with my bow and arrow. So couldn't be more excited to wrap up the season with this hunt and also with good friends, no cameraman, just bow hunting, which will be, um, really enjoyable. I like it both ways and I've had some great cameramans and we've captured a couple great hunts this year, but, uh, it'll be fun to just cut loose and go bow hunt and really enjoy this last hunt of the year. So couldn't be more excited. I'm going to make more of a showing on social media. Just been so busy with hunting season and construction and things, but, uh, I definitely want to pass on some good content to you guys. So I've been capturing it all season long and we'll start to release that to you guys. So uh, thanks a bunch for um, listening in and the support. I really appreciate it. And uh, congratulations to you guys. There's a bunch of you guys that found success this season through hard work, dedication, effort. Like, man, that stuff pays off. Like, dedication to our craft of bow hunting and self-improvement gives us a, a better chance at success. And it's not... It's, it's not the short road, it's the long road to success, a, a, a discipline of continually putting in the work, but it does pay off. And uh, that's the only way that I have found bow hunting success, and a lot of you guys have taken to that same credence, putting in the work, and now seeing incredible success with your bow, with your rifle, during hunting season for you and for your family and friends. So uh, congratulations to you guys. Uh, really pumped to share in some of your success. And with that, let's wrap this week's podcast up. It was a great episode, and uh, we'll have another one coming for you next week.